Sometimes you just want the quick facts. No opinions, no speculation. I'm Claire Thornton, an audio editor with USA Today. My team works around the clock to bring you the Five Things podcast. Every morning, me and my co-host Taylor Wilson help you know what to keep an eye out for that day. We always have a fresh mix of stories, from politics to entertainment to sports, covering all parts of the country. On Sundays, you can lean back with in-depth episodes about stories you may have heard earlier that week. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows and start listening to Five Things today. Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Governor Ron DeSantis gives a platform to anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists during an event opposing vaccine mandates. Florida's standardized testing program is being dismantled and the Florida legislature begins committee weeks with redistricting on the table. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson. And those are some of the stories I'll be discussing with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. But first... All right, that music means it's number time. Uh, Antonio, you got a number for us today? Yeah, I came in with uh, 512. All right, how about you, John? Zach, I do have a number and it's pretty big and it's pretty precise. It's 93,692. All right, 93,692. You got me beat. My number this week is 10,000. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, throughout the fourth wave of the pandemic in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has faced criticism for not doing enough to promote the vaccine. DeSantis hasn't been anti-vaccine and has often pointed out that the vaccine is effective at preventing hospitalization and death, but he hasn't focused his public events on urging people to get the vaccine, instead pushing monoclonal antibody treatments. But this week, a DeSantis press conference had a full-blown vaccine conspiracy theory moment when the governor traveled to Gainesville to oppose the city's vaccine mandate for city workers. A city employee said he didn't want to get the vaccine because it would change his RNA. That's simply not true, but DeSantis didn't correct him. John, DeSantis isn't opposing the vaccine himself, but he is sort of aligning, flirting with some of these anti-vax folks who've, who have some pretty wild views. And his opposition to vaccine mandates could make for an explosive few months since an increasing number of governments and businesses are requiring the vaccine. Oh, you're right, Zach. Uh, you know, fighting these vaccine requirements looks like they're going to be, you know, DeSantis's next battleground. Uh, he reminded uh, Florida governors at uh, go- governments, city and county, at this vaccine-defying event in the Gainesville area that cities and counties and businesses are subject to five thousand dollar fines for each incident where an employee is required to show proof of vaccine before going to work. Um, That's a new law that he got through a very willing legislature earlier this year. Now, uh, Florida governments haven't rushed forward with these requirements, although several have, including Orange County, which is a big employer. Uh, But the Republican governor and, uh, you know, of course, maybe future presidential candidate, uh, he has taken this as uh, another moment to take on President Biden, who is imposing vaccine mandates on uh, federal employees and healthcare institutions that rely on federal funding, uh, along with private business employers with uh, 100 or more workers. So it's uh, it's very likely that you know, just like with DeSantis's you know, ban on school mask mandates, that he's going to 
face another revolution with uh, a lot of governments, hospitals and businesses uh, eager to comply with uh, federal workplace law, which uh, typically takes precedent over local laws like DeSantis is promoting. Although, sure, that may be something for the courts to sort out. Uh, the, the Gainesville event, though, was really pretty delusional, uh, you know, especially when one of the city employees made that comment about the, the vaccine changing your body's uh, molecular structure. Uh, you know, <laughs> there was no mention of Nicki Minaj's cousin. This thing was pretty nutty. John, this is a this is a family oriented show. We can't go there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I saw that the uh, the prime minister of Trinidad had to respond to the comment this week, and it was pretty pretty amazing yeah. uh, what he had to say but well, generally it involves the uh, the, the male reproductive uh, abilities <laughs> i guess so uh, uh but anyway but yeah no th that didn't come up at, at this event but uh the event did turn out to be a, a pep rally for the unvaccinated although all of the city employees who spoke managed to say that their opposition wasn't to the vaccine but rather to the mandate that they get vaccinated but uh to anyone listening to this, it sure sounded a lot more like they opposed the vaccines. But, um, you know, DeSantis sees points to be made with the anti-vax minority, which will proclaim him as a defender of liberty. Um, still, I, I, I do wonder if DeSantis is going to be able to stop what may be a growing number of businesses and uh, governments that support requiring vaccines. Uh, just this week, uh, Biden met with executives from Walt Disney Company, uh, you've heard of them, uh, which, which they support vaccine mandates. Uh, Biden said that vaccinations mean fewer infections, hospitalizations and death. And uh, in turn, that means a stronger economy, which uh, means a lot, obviously, to businesses like Walt Disney and, uh, and others. Uh, just like with the vaccine passport for cruise ships, which uh, DeSantis has lost in federal court, but is appealing. You wonder how long this pro-business Republican is going to be fighting against Florida businesses and common sense. But that anti-vaxxer voting base, which uh, closely tracks the Trump base, seems to be who Florida's governor is most loyal to right now. And John, one thing that was interesting, the governor cited Senate Bill uh, 2006, which he passed uh, last year through the legislature, uh, in saying that he could go after uh, local governments that have these vaccine mandates. And a lot of people were reading through that bill and they're kind of perplexed at how he has this authority because that bill did specifically address vaccine passports and saying that businesses couldn't re require employees, or I'm sorry, not employees, customers to have proof of the vaccine um, to, to shop there or to go on a cruise ship or to go to a restaurant or something like that. But it doesn't really, the language doesn't seem to explicitly ad uh, address vaccine uh, mandates, does it? Yeah, that, that was a, a, a real question mark. I mean, the governor is seizing on that now. But yeah, in, in a news conference around the time that the bill was signed, was talking about how it does not directly affect employment. And, um, you know, now he is using it as sort of the underpinning to this, uh, uh, you know, attack on any kind of a vaccine requirement to uh, to have employment. So, um, yeah, he, he seems to be talking out of both sides there. Well, while the governor was battling vaccine mandates, he was also battling the ghosts of Jeb Bush's education policies this week. DeSantis announced he is following through on his pledge to dismantle Florida's standardized testing system, 
which was put in place 20 years ago by Bush as part of a conservative education accountability movement led by his brother in the White House. Since then, the tests have frequently been maligned by teachers and many parents as too high stakes. And many Republicans increasingly uh, have come to agree with them as well. Antonio, amid all of the controversy surrounding DeSantis and his COVID response, this is kind of another interesting example of how the governor is sometimes willing to buck conservative orthodoxy on things like medical marijuana and environmental issues. Yeah, you know, and I'll tell you, the, the governor's office billed Tuesday's event as a quote unquote major announcement, and it surely was a big deal. You know, specifically, he will ask lawmakers to end the Florida Standards Assessment annual exams that are used in classrooms across the state. And instead, the governor said he's going to support this uh, progress monitoring system, which he described as an individual assessment of students that would take place throughout the school year rather than these high stakes tests at the end of the academic year. And the government said it would be more student friendly, more teacher friendly and more parent friendly. And. You know, the announcement certainly promises an end to one of the nation's most extensive and high stakes statewide testing regimens after, like you said, two decades of parent and educator opposition. And indeed, DeSantis echoed many of those longstanding gripes when declaring his intentions from this uh, Doral school earlier this week. Now, the move is sure to be popular with many parents and teachers. And in fact, the teachers union, the Florida Education Association, immediately applauded the move. And it's, it's not often that the FEA... Uh, you know, stands shoulder to shoulder with a Republican governor on an education uh, initiative. You know, others, however, were more cautious. Uh, the test alone isn't the problem, they said. And the critics have long argued that the, the tests themselves weren't just the only issue, but rather the way the test changed the nature of the classroom and, and, and about the way that, you know, the, the consequences of those exams were tied to student results and, and ultimately to a number of other issues. For example, uh, they want to know whether Florida will continue to attach any kind of high stakes performance evaluation to things like promotion from third grade or, or graduation from high school or district and school grades or even teacher evaluations. Uh, still, it would arguably be the biggest change in Florida education in more than two decades. As you mentioned, the FSA was the original, the precursor to the FSA was the FCAT which was the brainchild of then Governor Jeb Bush, who wanted this accountability in classrooms. And, and he constantly railed against perennial low performance and great promotion in Florida schools uh, of kids that really should were not learning or not reading up to standards, you know, to what their grade standard or even mathematics, you know, what they should be knowing or should have mastery in by the time they finish a certain grade. And, and over time, the FCAT became its own four-letter word as it dominated the school year with so-called BAT tests, where like these benchmark tests to measure progress. And even workbooks and textbooks were all geared to quote unquote, teach to the test. And then schools got letter grades based on how their students performed with top performance netting A's and the worst getting F's. And at one point, you know, there was a push to tie educator salaries and bonuses to how well their students performed on these exams. And the FCATs even influenced Florida's housing market as homes and neighborhoods with A-rated schools went up in demand and price. Now DeSantis says that the entire process is outdated, and he added that by the time the results of the major tests are released, the school year is over, and it's too late for the modification of instruction to remedy any kind of deficiencies. Also, teachers and parents you know, are not getting real-time progress measures on their students throughout the school year, so you can't customize instruction with the FSAs, which is the drawback of anything that is standardized, after all. You know, the new progress monitoring will take hours, he said, not days. 
uh, to be able to do these assessments. And the assessments will take place in the fall, winter, and spring. And these progress monitoring tools will be tailored to each student, the government said. Uh, so DeSantis you know, said the progress assessment will cut testing time by 75% and better inform teachers you know, real time during the school year. Of course, at the end of the day, the legislature needs to make the change in state law. So it's not a done deal yet. Still, if you're a student in a classroom right now, you aren't maybe just counting the days to the next break or summer vacation, but also to the end of a testing system that has been the bane of a lot of Florida classrooms for many years. And my kids would tell you as much. Antonio, this also seems like another example of how con the conservative, how the Republican Party has changed um, you know, under Donald Trump, not just under Trump. I mean, there's been an evolution on education for a while now, but but it's really accelerated uh, under Trump to be more of a populist party, um, you know, on issues like trade uh, and, and uh, on, you know, foreign wars and things like that. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, there was this really ideologically driven conservative movement um, and education was really uh, at the centerpiece, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, and the interesting thing about that is, you know, it is more populist and he is responding just like the previous conversation we just had with with John about, you know, the 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 anti-vaxxers and we, the previous conversations we've even had about the parents that don't want the mask and the kids to wear the mask in the classroom. He, he is kind of playing to this populist zeal. But I also think there is also a part of this from the policy perspective that is really pragmatic. And a lot of things that he said about standardized testing, high stakes testing, uh, I, I think ring true to a lot of educators and to a lot of parents. And I you know like I went through this system when my, my kids, it was the FCAT when my kids were in school. And I can tell you that, I mean, I had a lot of those concerns. Like, you know, look, you're, you're teaching these kids throughout the school year and then it comes this high stakes test. And by the time you get the results, it's too late to do anything about it. You're kind of stuck. So it really lacked some pragmatism. It was kind of ideologically driven. So in some ways, if this progress monitoring system he's talking about it, it, from a policy standpoint also seems more pragmatic. And I think that's one of the appeals to the broad population of this populism is that they, you hear a lot of terms when you talk to people that are willing to support these populist initiatives. What they tell you is that you know, they use words like common sense, pragmatic. This, this makes sense as opposed to something that is kind of theoretical and it may just not be, you know, it may not be the most efficient and effective way of doing things. So I think part of the appeal of this, of this, po this populism, whether it's in education or in other you know, trade and other policies, is pragmatism and what people believe or comes across to people as, as common sense. It's pretty interesting whenever you have uh, DeSantis and the teachers union in complete agreement on something. I think it is just another example of how. Um, it can sometimes be be hard to put him in a box. He, I think Democrats have come to see him as a pretty hardline uh, conservative, and that was definitely his image before he ran for governor. And then you see him doing a press conference with John Morgan in favor of smokable medical marijuana. And then after all of this um, battles over COVID, um, you know, he, he ends up, uh, you know, agreeing with Democrats and the teachers union on a pretty big deal here with this testing. So, um, not always easy to define some of his views. Revamping Florida's testing system is among the many items the Florida legislature is expected to take up next year during the 2022 legislative session that begins in January. Pre-session committee uh, weeks start next week, and one of the big items on the agenda is redistricting. 
The once a decade redrawing of congressional and legislative districts is being closely watched because of its potential to shift the balance of power in Congress and to shore up GOP control of Tallahassee for years to come. John, this process was hugely controversial the last time around. The lawsuits drug out for years. What are you expecting this time around? Well, this time around, I'm thinking this fight may be uh, just as prolonged as last time, but it could be hard to describe, a little more subtle, nuanced, and uh, kind of more behind the scenes. Yeah, people are really tight-lipped about it, right? They're a little bit um, scarred by what happened last time and and worried about uh, what could happen this time. Yeah, I think the Republicans are wary about giving the Democrats anything that they can drag into court. Uh, And uh, the Democrats uh, don't quite have the same muscle that they had even 10 years ago. Uh, And primarily it's because the the Florida Supreme Court is not a potential avenue for helping them in redistricting, as it was uh, during the last round of redistricting a a decade ago. Uh, Democrats uh, during the 2012 redistricting knew that they had a uh, kind of a new wild card. They had the Fair Districts Amendments, which had been approved by voters just two years earlier, and they they prohibit political gerrymandering, uh, basically drawing lines to help incumbents or a party. Uh, the Republicans during that cycle uh, also badly handled that new requirement. Uh, they engaged in some uh, behind-the-scenes political trickeration that had members of, their, of the public submit maps that were drawn by Republican political consultants. And, uh, you know, the consultants were trying to make it look like these were citizen input maps, uh, you know, proposals. And uh, they, they did, these consultants shared map details by secret email uh, with all of this coming out in the years of litigation that followed the uh, legislature's uh, attempt at drawing maps in 2012. Um, so Republicans are aware of the, the legal risk now that they face if they act badly. And they, uh, they, they may seem to uh, try to avoid this behavior this time around. But, um, you know, the, the other thing is, is that they, uh, they don't really need to maybe play that many games uh, because they have a state that is already trending Republican so they don't have to get too greedy. I mean, that would be a, a factor. The, uh, the, the other factor this time around is that the, the Florida Supreme Court is comprised completely of Republican appointed justices. Last time there were still three justices on the uh, seven person court who had been named by a Democratic governor. So uh, it's unlikely that the Supreme Court will be a legal lifeline for Democrats who uh, don't get what they want out of the Republican legislature. But, um, you know, that, that's not to say that the drama won't uh, occur, that there won't be plenty of drama, let's say, uh, the, or that we can expect a, a walk in the park this time. Uh, there's going to be plenty of uh, courtroom fighting over whatever maps the legislature finalizes next spring, because, uh, again, the Democrats will be looking for the state courts and federal courts to uh, possibly uh, do something, you know, g- give them a, a better shot than what is likely to emerge from the Republican legislature. Now, uh, Democrats are, you know, way in the minority in the legislature. So the redrawing of uh, state house and Senate maps probably doesn't hold too much hope for them uh, as far as making substantial gains. But Congress is where the pressure is on Florida Democrats to help President Biden at least maintain control of the U.S. House in what's coming up as the uh, the, the dreaded midterm elections when the uh, the party in the White House almost always loses seats. Um, if if the Democrats lose seats in next year's election, there's a good chance they will lose the the U.S. House. Maybe they'll lose the U.S. Senate. Um, 
Florida gains an additional congressional seat will be up to 28 members of Congress, and that seat is likely to be drawn somewhere in the Interstate 4 corridor where the, uh, the biggest population growth occurred over the last 10 years. Um, but, you know, there are also seven districts. I mean, here we are in a state of, of such rapid growth, but there are seven districts, three Republicans and four Democratic held seats that are currently below the ideal population for a congressional seat. So they're going to have to change some. And the idea of a game of uh, musical chairs among incumbents who could lose a favored seat, uh, that's a possibility to uh, come out in these next weeks and months of uh, redistricting uh, debate. And uh, both national parties, of course, are looking at Florida when it comes to deciding control of Congress next year. Because, you know, remember, a shift of five seats in the House would give Republicans control of that chamber. And it's possible that one or two of those shifting seats could come from Florida. So politically, that gives both parties something worth fighting for here. Um, but I also think it's going to be a long fight. While committees in the legislature begin their work this week, I don't think we'll see a House, Senate, or congressional map for, for a while, maybe, maybe a long while, um, because so much of redistricting ultimately becomes this courtroom battle with uh, Democrats, you know, outnumbered, knowing that the Republican-controlled legislature will effectively do what it wants. I think the Republicans will try to drag out next year's redistricting in the legislature so that it doesn't wind up in federal or state court until late spring or into the summer. That would make it increasingly likely that, uh, you know, purely because of timing, that whatever maps have been approved by the legislature uh, become the boundaries that are used, at least for next year's election when the battle for Congress is going to be fierce and when Biden's Democratic-controlled Congress is, uh, is on the line. Um, you know, having members of Congress run in new seats drawn by Florida's Republican-led legislature is, uh, I'm pretty sure, going to result in Republicans doing better here. So I think uh, Republicans may not be in too much of a hurry to finalize next th those maps next year when the legislature uh, begins its work in uh, January at the regular session. Uh, I have a feeling we may not see final maps emerging until basically closing time for the legislature in March. That would be my bet. Yeah, uh, and it, it's something where uh, they don't want to show their cards uh, too quickly um, because they, they realize it's all going to wind up in court here. Um, you know, this is a fascinating issue for people who are kind of political wonks like us. It can be a, an issue that's um, you know, difficult to to fully explain and and for people to to grasp if they're not immersed in it. But uh, I assume that if you're listening to a political podcast, you're probably a bit of a political wonk. So it's something that we'll be following pretty closely here. It does have um, pretty big ramifications uh, going forward. We'll move on to our numbers. Antonio, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, 512 refers to the number of pages in a new book about the end of the Trump presidency and a book that Florida U.S. Senator Marco Rubio seized this week and catapulted himself into the national spotlight. The book, called The Peril, is by Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. Among its revelations, the book discusses how Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley was so concerned about former President Trump's state of mind in the last weeks of his term, uh, and specifically after the uh, January 6th insurrection of the Capitol, Milley, Costa, and Woodward report, called Chinese military counterparts to reassure them that the U.S. planned no hostile military measures. And he convened a meeting of U.S. military officials to go over the process of of, of how a nuclear strike is launched, presumably to safeguard against a rogue action by Trump. 
Now, Trump has declared the, the reporting that he was unstable as, quote unquote, ridiculous. Uh, but the one who has been most outspoken has been Rubio. He's been on all these uh, network news shows calling for Milley to resign or be fired, saying that what he did undermined the president and was, you know, uh, almost treasonous. Now, critics say Rubio is grandstanding. The truth is, from my own reporting from the Guantanamo base a number of years ago, I can tell you military officials, you know, talk to their counterparts in adversary countries regularly. And after the world saw what we on January 6th, what we saw, it's not shocking to hear that Milley would have reached out to military friends and foes given the violence we saw at the Capitol in what was an attempted coup to keep Trump in power. But clearly the moment has given Rubio a platform and he has grabbed it. Look, General Milley has been in the crosshairs of Trump world for a long time. The former president has berated him for being woke and, and supporting never-ending wars. Trump world has ripped Milley, or ripped Milley for the hasty and haphazard exit from, Af from Afghanistan last month as well. So Rubio's attack on Milley will play well with the GOP and Trump base in Florida, which, of course, he needs for his 2022 re-election bid. You know, and we've talked about how Rubio is still viewed with suspicions in some corners of the MAGA universe and going after Milley should help him there. That being said, the moves does have its own political risk. If Milley sticks around despite Rubio's pressure, it'll make him look weak. And in MAGA land, there's nothing worse than looking weak. Yeah, it was pretty interesting how quickly Rubio jumped on that story. He can often be, um, you know, a, a little bit, um, you know, kind of wait and see and and uh, wait to put out a statement until he kind of sees where things are going. But this is one that he really seemed to feel strongly about, and uh, he's been hammering on it for sure. John, you want to tell us about uh, your number? Yeah, Zach, uh, 93,692. That's the number of signatures that, as of yesterday, uh, were on a petition to recall Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It's on the uh, website change.org and has been for a year, but it seems like it's gathered more, some more attention, um, more signatures, certainly, uh, amid what is now a failed Republican effort in California to recall that state's Democratic governor, uh, Gavin Newsom. Uh, another uh, distinction between these states that are known for their sunshine and crazy and weird politics and uh, breaking news is, uh, well, unlike California, Florida doesn't have statewide recall elections. So uh, so this recall isn't going anywhere, but maybe it still does say something. The uh, DeSantis recall effort has roughly doubled its signatures in the last month, which closely uh, adheres to some of our worst COVID numbers and uh, frustration about back to school issues and the governor fighting mask mandates in classrooms. We were just talking about some of those clashes. Um, his, his popularity and support in mainstream polls though too are also taking a hit during the same period. Um, the recall petition was largely started around the, uh, the difficulty with filing for unemployment benefits in Florida. That's a situation which, which you know, really remains a problem for many, the latest being that the state's Department of Economic Opportunity recently launched a uh, verification process for users seeking to file benefits that, that effectively has locked out many of those looking to, uh, to seek uh, you know, unemployment benefits right now to file their uh, claims. Uh, the governor's handling of uh, COVID-19 now, though, is also adding people to those who uh, want him recalled. So, you know, even if the, the recall Ron DeSantis effort won't fly, it, it is sort of a shot across the bow for the governor who uh, you'd think, you know, he, he should be mindful of this. Um, 
especially if the spike in signatures continues. Uh, you know, Newsom may have gotten a new lease on life this week uh, with that recall effort being shot down pretty easily. But uh, DeSantis is going to have to wait until next November's governor's race to uh, to truly gauge the results of his popularity level. So, sounds like a really effective strategy. Start a recall petition in a state that doesn't have a statewide uh, recall law. Yeah, well, a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well, my number is 10000 That's the minimum amount of money that someone in Texas can receive if their lawsuit against an abortion provider is successful under the state's new abortion law. The Texas law that outlaws abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is typically around six weeks, has been in the spotlight lately because the U.S. Supreme Court let it stay in place while it's being challenged. So Texas has one of the most restrictive abortion laws uh, in the nation. It basically outlaws um, the vast majority of abortions. Florida lawmakers already are working on similar legislation for this state, and the issue could really be a huge topic of debate when the Florida legislature meets next year. So it was significant when Republican State Senator Kathleen Pasadomo said this week uh, at an event in Sarasota that she doesn't like the provision in the Texas law that allows citizens to enforce the measure and awards those who are successful with their lawsuits at least $10,000. Pasadomo is one of the most powerful Republicans in Florida, because she is in line to be Senate president after the current Senate president's two-year term is up. Pasadomo said the enforcement mechanism in the Texas law pits neighbors against neighbors and called the provision, quote, very troubling. She does support banning abortion after a heartbeat can be detected, so it doesn't look like she'll stand in the way of a bill uh, along those lines but it could have less teeth than what Texas is proposing and certainly seems like uh, the Texas bill won't pass in Florida without some significant revisions. Well, that wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. We'll be taking a break next week and returning at the end of the month. I wanna thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe, we're out of here.